Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, we go to the state of California in a brand new series titled Beyond Missions, the history of the Chumash Nation and the final segment of the global civil war, capitalism, post-pandemic, here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone fool in the black of the night, you can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know, when come a cunny blows to the bar who drum, it's the warriors who are marching mm-hmm. down the In the first segment of today's program, we go to the state of California as part of our brand new series titled Beyond Missions, the History of the Chumash Nation. Our guest, Dr. John Anderson, for over 50 years has been researching into and writing on the Chumash history and culture since the early 1970s at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His research includes the Tejon Reservation in California and the treaty with the Castaic, Tejon, etc. of 1851 between several California indigenous nations and the U.S. government. Marcus Lopez from the Chumash Nation and executive director and co-host of American Indian Airwaves starts part one of our continuing series titled Beyond Missions, The History of the Chumash Nation with Dr. John M. Anderson. Now, John, to get started, we want to just focus on, because you wrote numerous books. Gosh, I don't know, we're talking about the um, Chumash culture, the Western Gate, Point Conception, the Autumn Equinox, uh, the... uh, a Chumash Internet Project, you know, I can go on and on and on, Chumash Nation, marginalizing the Chumash Indians, which we will focus on this discussion, Chumash House of Faith and the philosophy and, and the culture of, for example, like the surface race and from jump, the fox jump, and it's circled within the abyss, which you wrote numerous amount of books on this subject. But first of all, before we get started, John, Please, let's talk about the terms. I want to ask you about Chumashlandia. What do you mean by that, and how do you use it in your books? Well, when I first started writing, my focus was on the Tahone Reservation, which is uh, below Bakersfield. And I wanted to understand the role of the Chumash in that uh, pan-tribal treaty. And very quickly, I realized that the uh, treaty lands had been taken by the representative uh, who was supposed to protect the Indians. And that led me into uh, working on the study of 
how they got there and whether they were related to the coastal Chumash, which it turns out that they were interacting with them extensively. And my research kind of led me into the history, but my background is in philosophy. That's what my doctorate is in. And so I decided to write a lot of the philosophical books uh, secondary to the Tahon research. And more recently, I've been turning to these uh, research files that I developed over 40 years uh, and releasing them finally for the history aspect of it. And that's all being put on a database so that people can read these books for free. And it's called johnandersonlibrary.org, O-R-G. You mentioned that when you began your study with the Tohon area and the, and the Tohon Reservation, which we're, on this series of discussion of Chumash history, we're, we will not get into. It's a discussion yes. in itself. So, but yet, yes, Chumashlandia, to tell, to give the listeners a kind of overview, what are we talking about? Give me a verbal kind of painting of what area are we talking about? Goes from one area to what area? Uh, clarify that. I would say, listeners. yeah, I use the term, uh, sometimes I say Chumashia, and what I mean by that is the large area in Southern California that was occupied by various Chumash language groups. And early American uh, academics, uh, Krober, for example, who was at Berkeley, uh, treated these various uh, groups, these language areas, uh, as separate. And in fact, they were interacting for, for the beginning of time. And this is what I'm trying to document in my historical writings, is that in a sense, they are one nation. And they very much preferred to interact with each other. You know, the coastal people uh, especially were organized in large provinces and the mainly two over history, and the interior people were, had their own uh, organizations and their own leading uh, communities like Castaic of Castaic Lake for the mountain Chumash, or Tashlapun, which is San Domingo, which is now a, a public park. These were very powerful uh, communities that were interacting regularly with the coast. So I see the, the, the Chumashia as being one story. And in modern times, this is why I advocate and have been from the very beginning of my writings that each of the groups that we can document that had a separate history be given a separate homeland. And I've been advocating that uh, for so long. You know, you, one gets w worn out after a while, but you just go back at it because I think that's really critical. But there's other aspects other than just having land, and that has to do with the Chumash groups that if they can't get federal recognition, they uh, are kind of creating a modern Chumash culture within these different areas. And the areas go from um, Los Angeles, uh, the Malibu Chumash extend uh, into the uh, Santa Monica area, and uh, into the interior quite a ways towards San Fernando. The Ventura Chumash were on the uh, Ventura River 
and along the coast. Uh, the Santa Barbara Chumash were a distinct group. The Islanders were divided in more uh, current uh, history uh, into two groups, the Western Islanders and the Eastern Islanders. That's a, a very interesting history. And quite a number of my writings uh, talk about the, the dynamics of uh, Spanish and then later uh, British, American, and Russian ships coming to the islands and uh, basically reducing and through violence, warfare, the island people till, until they had to abandon the islands. But the Chumashia also extends into what I call the Cajismuas province. That's the uh, area now of the um, Vandenberg Air Force Base and a large area around that uh, base and all the way up into the Cambria area, which would be the Stishni Chumash. And one more to mention, which is the Somala Chumash, the Santianes. And today they have the only uh, reservation, surviving reservation, uh, in the community of Santianes. Thank you, John, for that description, because it's really important that people understand the, what is it, uh, 10 million acres? What do you, how many acres do you think? Boy, I haven't checked on that for a while. Um, it's very large. Yeah, very, 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 very large in the area. People can check on the map and on that. On the book, The Margins of History and margin, Marginalizing the Chumash People in Southern California, you're saying that for generations, the Chumash Indians in Southern California have been left off the public record with the exception of carefully contrived mission histories that popularize the myth of the extinct people who faced, who faded with the public record before much could be learned about them. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I feel like the uh, bulk of the uh, histories that have been written since the invasion of Chumashia, uh, which would be 1769, have been biased towards European values, European religion, European culture. It includes both the Spanish occupation of Chumashia, the Mexican, and the American. And the claim for extinction has been very, very persistent because that sets up the various uh, provinces, the cities, the state government, the federal government to process their natural resources without sharing anything with them. Denying them federal recognition and denying them a land base is you know, basic to understanding the history of modern Chumash people. Thank you, John. I thought that was really that portion of that and uh, the beginning of that in this book that I'm going to focus on this interview is it's, it's on one hand dated, but you say in 2007 you were last ed ed edited. But yet one of the aspects I wanted to get to before people open up the side and read it is now let's go down to other terms. Um, you mentioned Samala, Tejon Reservations, Muish, Dulape, Kashwa Reservation, and Kashimuwash. Go down the list and uh, who, who, where are these people? Uh, and you, these are the original names. Why don't you tell us more about that if you could just go down to it. And first of all, let's start with, uh, let's start with the word Chumash. Um, 
Uh, you mentioned that a little bit in your book, but yet, how does it get the name Chumash? Oh, it, that's an interesting uh, story, Marcus. Um, the I see it as a um, a result of uh, American capitalist taking advantage of the fact that the uh, Limu Island, that's the uh, Santa Cruz Islanders, one of the ways that they uh, made uh, successfully made trade with the mainland was to produce shell beads, which were one form of money throughout Chumashia, also extending through trade into other areas of the interior. But that was not the essence of the Chumash people, that is, making money. Now, they were not capitalists. The, the Chumash people were mystics. And the, um, uh, it was the American scholars who, who used that uh, designation. I don't mind it. I use it in my books. But I always point out that it, it initially, historically, it referred to the Limu Islanders and their use of um, shells to make money for trade. In one of your books, John, you mentioned Samala, which people don't know what that is. Uh, what is that, and what, that, what does it have to do with the river? Well, the Samala River is a Santinez River, and it's a very long river that runs, interestingly enough, east to west from the mountains all the way to the ocean, which is in the San, the delta of the river is in the, the um, Vandenberg Air Force Base. And if you follow that river from the delta upriver, you start with the Cajas Muas, um, which would be the Parisima in the Spanish language. And uh, they had a large provincial area led by Saxpiel, a town, and uh, they had two missions uh, within that area, the lower river. Uh, one of them, uh, the first one, was um, uh, uh, Sakupi, and that was the first Parisma mission that was destroyed in 1812 in the Great Earthquake. And when it was destroyed, a number of the people were in the process of going into exile in their discontent into the mountains to join with the mountain Chumash. And these people became the Takuya Chumash, living in Takuya Canyon uh, next to um, the Castaic Lake down below where the, the river there, or the, lake, the creek, uh, runs in, into the flatlands. We want to remind listeners you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. John Anderson in part one of our ongoing series titled Beyond Missions, the History of the Chumash Nation. And now back to the interview here on American Indian Airwaves. The other mission among the Cajas Muas was built after the quake, which devastated Sakupi, and that was built um, downriver at Amuwu, and I use these terms in all my writings out of respect for the, the Chumash people because their story uses their names for these places. And, and John, so I, that's why, it, that, that is why I respect your work because of the fact that you use these original names, and it's kind of difficult when you read it, but when you get used to the, it you is. get to the rhythm of it, you understand that, that um, the Supakai, Amuwu, you know, 
And I asked a Sumash friend of mine, a war original mission, he goes, you know, I really don't know. So uh, all this information is, is new, and then you write in a new book on that whole history, you know, before that, and, and all the dynamics go of that, but that's yet to come. But let's go now, take the listeners, you got them through the, um, the Super Kai or the first mission that was destroyed by the earthquake, and 1821, and then finally to a uh, Purisima or a Mu, and then now we're going up the river or going uh, going east. Uh, take take us by the hand and lead us into the villages, up into uh, the uh, up up the Samala River because there's a lot of villages up there. Yes, there were. Uh, the next group, the next language group, would be the Samala, and that's the Santinez people, which is of the modern Santinez Reservation. And they were a relatively small provincial area. They were, it was a persistent cultural group and whatnot, but it was not a significant or dominant um, area of Tumashia. And it's just historically ironic that they end up with the only reservation. Uh, it was 99 yeah. acres was all we could find for them. So in that area, there were some large uh, towns, but... What is really interesting in my writing is uh, the upper part of the river because one of the theses that I uh, followed early in my writings is that the Santa Barbara area, Shumish, the coastal Shumish, were closely tied to the Tashilpun Chumash in San Amigdio in, in the mountains, actually uh, on the the north side of the Chumash Mountains facing the Central Valley. And it's, it's my assumption that the people uh, once, the Chumash people once occupied a larger area of the Central Valley and were driven out by the expansion of the Yokuts. We're talking thousands of years ago. And therefore they were compacted into that San Amigdio area, which would be, uh, if one were to follow the Cuyama River, which I often did because I lived in Southern California myself, uh, the upper Kuyama uh, is a route from the coast to the Tashlupan. But most important is the Santa Barbara Canyon, which does not follow the Kuyama River, but comes directly from Santa Barbara straight through the mountains to Tashlupan. And it's that area of the upper river that's really critical and not well understood by most historians because it was occupied by the Shumish people, the Santa Barbara people, and um, the, it was a, the connection to the Tashlapun area. So we have all, all those different, three different language groups occupying the uh, Santinez River. Thank you, John, so much for doing that, because even my dad was talking about the relationship, even the relatives, about all over the place. It wasn't just um, a borderline stop there. No one inter interfered there. But the, oh, no. But the, but the interaction of people was phenomenal. My next question about that is you mentioned uh, um, the Muish and the Lulapin. Talk about those two terms. Well, let's take Lulapin first. When I followed the, um, the story of uh, Tashlipun, because remember my initial contact was the mountains you mentioned, the Tahon Reservation. And so it took me a while to try to understand the Ventura area, Chumash, 
and how they were part of the story of smuggling gold into out of California, uh, out of the Tashilpun smelter, and by the Catholic Church. So I looked for a, words that would uh, encompass that whole area, going, you know, Magoo, what we call modern uh, naval base of Magoo, Point Magoo, was called Muwu. It means the place of the coast. And that was the um, government or provincial council seat for the Ventura area coastal Chumash. And the word Lulapan was uh, cited by early writers not to encompass that whole area, but an area near Ventura. And it was used by some of the early American scholars for that area. We don't know exactly what they call themselves, uh, and but there, here's the key to it to understand it, is it, all of Ventura County was not uh, controlled by that provincial government at, at Muwu. And in fact, there was a very major uh, civil war between the Mountain Chumash, led by the Castaic of Castaic Lake, and the um, Magoo uh, t uh, loyal towns uh, fighting each other. And this is another story, but it was very important, and it had to do with the plagues that were coming in to all of Chumashia that was along the coast. Let's see, what was the other one you wanted me to talk about? Yeah, I, before I go there, I think, you know, the move, the, the fact that the structure of the government, the untop and, and the way the villages were organized by the woods, um, that it was not popular view was that they were just independent of one another or they were just, uh, you know, they didn't communicate with one another. But there, there were very sophisticated amount of organization, would you not say? Yes, I, yes, definitely. In fact, um you know, when the first Spanish ships came in, Cabrillo and whatnot, in the 1600s, um, they reported that the whole coastal, I call it the Chumash Channel, um, American scholars typically call it the Santa Barbara Channel, was divided into two large provinces which were rivals to each other. And uh, at that time, um, Muwu was not uh, the uh, provincial capital. It was at Shuku. Uh, which is uh, what we now call Rincon, and that's where it's very famous for its surfing. Um, and Shuku, it means a, a place where the, of the respected people. It means respect. And but they lost their power in, um, through plagues, and which devastated the coast. Uh, and it repeatedly did so. Kitsi Powell described them as four great plagues. One of which he describes as the the Civil War, so it's three uh, diseases that came through and just devastated the area. And so the shifting of, of uh, the central provincial capitals changed with time. And eventually, uh, Muwu, because of the, it had a large uh, population of people at Simomo, which is uh, next to um, uh, uh, Muwu, it, it's in the uh, the wetlands there at the Magoo uh, uh, base. It, it developed immunity to diseases far superior to all the other towns in the area, and so it was able to send its surplus population, its surplus, in just the sense that it, it had plenty to send people off to these 
empty, disease-ridden places, which were placed that way because of the uh, diseases being brought in by Europeans, Americans, the English, and whatnot. And so my books, what they're trying to emphasize to people, to the reader, is that this was a dynamic, changing situation that it's not true what so many of the American scholars in the early uh, decades said, that each town was uh, run uh, as an isolated uh, unit and the people were not aware of each other. And, and there was all these you know, racist uh, statements about how they, they never even got outside their, their you know, valley and they didn't know about anybody you know, 12 miles away. I mean, these, uh, it got to the point of being ridiculous. And it, it's from Kitsy Powett, who was a very, very important Tumash historian, I learned to place a new focus on the provincial governments. And you can see this um, in Bob Gibson's research. He doesn't talk about it that way so much, but he does document the intermarriages between the, the uh, western Chumash towns. And you can see that certain towns have extensive intermarriages, and these would be the more dominant uh, politically active communities. Uh, and uh, other towns had virtually no interacting, usually small towns, uh, except, of course, they did come to the gatherings at the provincial festivals and whatnot. So, you know, there's a lot of, of um, corrections that need to be made to so many of the books that are in the libraries, even academic books, uh, about the reality of uh, political sophistication for the Chumash. And by the way, that that is in my uh, research called Hiwaleki. Hiwaleki is a term that the Chumash used as a group would come in, like an, from a, let's say uh, the provincial capital is having a major festival, and small towns from the area are coming in to to celebrate together. When each town comes in as a group, uh, they would call out Hiwaleki, Hiwaleki, and that means make way, make way. And that's, I think, a, a really important phrase for understanding the cooperation and the interaction of the various Chumash. John, I want to get to um, the marginalizing the Chumash Indians. You have some real dynamic um, um, comments and information for people that are just barely understanding the Chumashlandia or the in Chumash country. But yet, talk about a little bit about the Smuish and the uh, Kasawa Reservation. What's the relation between the two? What are they? Okay. The best writing done on that topic was done by Dr. Greg Schaff when he was a graduate student at UCSB. I met Greg early on. I was working at the University of California as administrator in instructional development and got interested in what Greg was doing, and we we moved on fr from there. He his Kashwa writing, it's called Sinangitas. That's the Spanish name of the community. That was the last. It was actually a reservation. It was stolen by the Hope, the Indian agent, and this was, you know, commonly done in California. The whole system worked against the Indians, and people would get themselves appointed an Indian agent because they got land and they got free labor 
and became rich by by using their contacts. Usually, it was in Washington uh, in the federal government, but sometimes it was through Sacramento. And the, the Kashwa people were so abused, and basically, Greg uh, documents how the city of Santa Barbara joined in in the despoilment of this tiny little reservation uh, and the federal government looked the other way and allowed it to happen uh, allied with the railroads the railroads came in and roughed them up as well it's a it's a tragedy there's no question about it and mostly it's marginalized that's what I mean by this book uh, marginalizing the Chumash Indians is we We'll just, we don't want to look to the past. We want to look to the future. Let's not look back there. There's nothing to see back there. Well, I'm trying to uh, document that there's a whole lot to see, and there's responsibility to be uh, dealt with. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't have any Indian blood. I'm, you know, Norwegian and German and Irish and whatnot. But I believe that we, white people, I use that word as a general term for European settlers who came to America uh, have damaged themselves by not dealing with the tragedy that they brought about in uh, taking away the native people's land and their resources. And this is why I'm an advocate of returning some land. And if, if that cannot be done, then we need to embrace the Chumash with open arms to help them rebuild their culture and, and their ties to each other. So much was done that was unjust. And that concludes part one of our ongoing series titled Beyond Missions, the history of the Chumash Nation. We were speaking with Dr. John M. Anderson, who's been researching into and writing on Chumash history and culture since the early 1970s. He's the author of numerous books and articles. And for more information on his work, you can visit the website johnanderson.org. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. I release you. I give you back to the soldiers who burned down my home, beheaded my children, raped and sodomized my brothers and sisters. I give you back to those who stole the food from our plates when we were starving. I release your fear Because you hold these scenes in front of me And I was born with eyes That can never close I release you I release you I release you I release you I am not afraid To be angry I gave you the leash 
Oh, you have gutted me, but I gave you the knife. Oh, you have devoured me, but I laid myself across the fire. I release you. I release you. I release you. I release you. I take myself back, fear. You are not my shadow any longer. I will hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice. The song Fear Poem by Joy Harjo off the album Native Joy for Real here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we turn to our final part of our interview with Dr. William I. Robinson on his brand new book, The Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. Dr. Robinson is a professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is the author of many award-winning books, including The Global Police State and Global Capitalism and the Crisis of Humanity, and We Will Not Be Silenced. This is the conclusion of our interview with Dr. William Robinson on his brand new book, The Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. I actually want to just point out how the global police state was enhanced by the response to the pandemic with some shocking examples. Because here's the thing, the pandemic allowed governments to, the governments and, and the big corporations controlled totally the response to the pandemic. They just, governments all around the world, 151 governments, declared states of emergency and imposed what some people call medical martial law and unleashed this wave of repression in the name of responding to the health emergency. And when when they released this wave of repression in 2020, 2021, and moving forward was just at a time when the global revolt was really taking off. Remember, 2019 is what I called a global spring. 2019 was there were these uprisings everywhere you looked around the world. Pandemic comes, it allows for squashing those uprisings in the name of fighting the pandemic. 
So under the, that pretext, authoritarian states deploy police and military forces all around the world using the new technologies. I want to give just a few examples. The Kenyan government, Kenya is a dictatorship. It said that it, it, almost overnight it declared the quarantine, 151 countries' quarantines under emergency laws. And the Kenyan government unleashed this wave of repression. In one case, which we all saw on YouTube, in Mombasa, the coastal city, port city of Mombasa, Security forces announced on loudspeakers, everyone race home, you have to quarantine, and started tear gassing and beat crowds of people trying to board a ferry home. In the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, he issued shoot-to-kill orders for anyone defying stay-at-home orders. And in Lima, and in Guatemala, and in El Salvador, to give three examples from Latin American countries, there was the military, the military itself patrolled the streets and anyone that would come out of their house was shot at. And this was a time when you had in Latin America that, that people spring mass uprisings in Colombia, in Peru, in, um, in um, Honduras, in, um, in Chile uh, and elsewhere. And, and these governments opened up concentration camps, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, we don't have all the figures, of people that violated the quarantine were put into concentration camps. You have a situation in Latin America and around the world where 60%, very often 60 or more percent of the population is in the informal sector. They have no state support. They're locked up in their house. They're literally starving to death. We have scenes coming out of Peru where... Um, and in, and in Guatemala and in Honduras and in El Salvador, where people would wave white flags as if they're in a military, in a war, giving up. They'd wave white flags at the doorsteps, hoping they could step out without being shot at to look for food. Let me conclude with the example of the Indian government. In 2019, you had a strike of 150 million people, workers and, and peasants. That was the biggest labor mobilization in the history of the world. That was late 2019 into early 2020, 150 million people. Soon as the pandemic hits and the Indian government, Indian government declares a nationwide lockdown, that allows for the total repression of this uprising. It was really the most extremely vicious response in the world, uh, the strictest lockdown. Police and military was filmed all, you know, we saw all these, all these on YouTube, carrying out street beatings and humiliations all over the country of anyone that wasn't locked down. Tens of millions of migrant workers, as many will remember this, were forced to work, walk home hundreds of kilometers, face extreme humiliation, reports of death in custody, mass arrests, spraying people with bleach to so-called disinfect them. And this was at a time when you had this mass mobilization in India. And so clearly, you know, these, re and I can go on and on. The book shows a whole long list of this repression from above in the name of fighting the pandemic. But the repressive state response had little or nothing to do with public health and everything to do with mass social control and repression at a time of the escalating and escalating global revolt that we really still haven't had a chance to, uh, uh, to speak to. I think because of lack of time, I can't get back to the point on digital currency, but that's coming online and it will allow, and it's, could not operate if it wasn't for these new technologies, and it will allow for a much more heightened control of everyone uh, on the planet, and it will allow the capitalist states that are going kind to of control digital currency to control the financial access of anyone that protests. So, you know, we had a situation in Canada, sure, that was organized by the right wing, the, the truckers, you know, in Canada by the border. That was a right wing led mobilization. But what's so scary is that the Canadian government instantly froze their bank, their bank holdings. 
of those people. So they couldn't withdraw something from ATM. Now, when the whole world is moving towards digital currencies, and that's already underway, it means that a government can instantly block your ability to have access to your money instantly within you know, a flash, a millimeter of a second, or your access to buy anything. So imagine there's anti-war protesters. Imagine there are union organizers. And the capitalist state and the tech companies and giant corporations and financial conglomerates that control the capitalist state now has this new financial control over us, which will be used to suppress the global working and popular classes. So this is a very dangerous moment that we are entering into. And I know we keep saying we're running out of time, and I haven't gotten to the global revolt, but remember, the ruling groups are doing all of this because we are mobilizing and an open revolt from below. And they're scared of us and our collective power worldwide. Well, that was incredible. I wanted to get to the notion of what the whole leading to all this is this is the old background to our global civil war. You talked about the revolts, but then at the ending of the book, you talk about boundaries have become blurred between active war zones and militarized cities experienced by civic strife, and that it has a social climate to it. It has a social aspect to it. It's not only political economists or economists that you say that we need to weave the two together, but yet how this is manifested in pandemic, uh, and you you mentioned it, and about whether the global revolt in which you, which you quote some of your men, we say we are now in the phase of autumn of capitalism without this being strengthened by the emergence of the people spring and the socialist perspective. In the chapter, mm-hmm. whether the global revolt, you talked about uh, the worldwide 2020 poll in which you found the majority of people around the world, 56%, believe capitalism is doing more harm than good. Talk about that for us. Sure. Absolutely. And this is a great way to end the interview because we want to focus on what we're doing from below to challenge all of this. So uh, the, the global revolt really takes off in, with the financial collapse of 2008. And it has been sustained despite there's some tragic setbacks to the global revolt. For instance, the Greek working class lost all of its momentum. The Arab Spring took a different direction. Um, in Latin America, there have been some setbacks. But the global revolt has not stopped. It's continued to pick up steam since 2008. And now, of course, these mass popular struggles against the depredations of global capitalism are conjoined with the fallout from the pandemic. As you just observed, the anti-capitalist sentiment is now a majority of people around the world actually have anti-capitalist sentiment. In the United States, because you mentioned worldwide, that's correct. In the United States, 60% of millennials and 57% of Generation Z support, according to a poll that was done in 2019, a complete change of our economic system away from capitalism. So the capitalist system and the capitalist states face a crisis of legitimacy and of uh, hegemony. And the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which uh, gets all of this aggregated data from around the world on, um, on, on popular protests, reported that from 2018 to 2020, there were significant anti-government protests in 110 countries involving over 230 major actions. Major actions means whole populations have uprisings. In the United States, a thousand strikes in the first six months of the pandemic, um, of course, when George Floyd was murdered by the police, there were 25 to 30 million people took to the streets, the single biggest popular mobilization in the history of the United States. Um, 
I mentioned the 150 million in India, but I didn't mention that that was 2019 into early 2020. Early two, late 2020 into early 2021, there was a mass strike of 250 million people in India. 250 million people. Think about that. So the point is here that all of these uprisings around the world have a common denominator. In a in aggressive global capitalism, which is in, is in crisis and is pushing to expand that crisis on the backs of the masses who can take no more hardship and deprivation. Um, so, but you mentioned something else. So in the final chapter, it's called um, The Global Revolt, and, it's, and I forgot the title of that final chapter, but so I talk about this global revolt and how important it is. But I also point out that in order for the global revolt to actually have any hope of challenging the global capitalist system, overthrowing it, hopefully, and giving us a more humane system, it, we have to address some of our weaknesses. And the one, one weakness that I'll mention, I mentioned four of them and go into detail in the book, is that we have this disjuncture between the proliferation of mass movements and popular uprisings all over the world. That's skyrocketing. But we have a lack of leftist leadership, socialist-oriented leadership of all of these uprisings. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. William I. Robinson on his brand new book, The Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic, the conclusion of this three-part interview. And now back to the global civil war, capitalism post-pandemic here on American Indian Airwaves. Right. The left and political parties, leftist political parties around the world are in crisis. They have little or almost no influence on these mass movements. You might say, well, why do we need them? The thing is, mass movements that focus on a single issue or a set of issues, they're extremely important. They're crucial. That's what makes that's the actual very heart of humanity and our struggle forward. But they need to be aggregated. They need to identify the whole larger social and economic order and a transformation of that order as the larger uh, problem. They need to be aggregated, that is, into a larger emancipatory project. I take the case because I participated in the BLM-led uh, uprising in the, in, the U, in the United States. Uh, I went, and what I noticed was there were tens, hundreds of thousands of largely young people. I call them kids. You know, I have grandkids myself. These kids, hungry, hungry for radical change, ready for radical change. But an almost complete absence of any organized left or any... Uh, discourse that could say, well, we're fighting police brutality, but behind police brutality is a larger global capitalist system, is the larger capitalist state, is the socioeconomic system itself. The police are there to protect private property and the rich. Sure, we don't want the police to have to murder us, but it's not enough to just keep control of the police because behind them is the whole system. There was none of that. And so the Black Lives Matter uprising, it fizzled out because the demands were limited to defunding the police, to changing, taking down statues. I was glad to see them go to changing names and so forth. And so we have this disjunction worldwide. I've looked at around the world. In most cases, there's no organized left. There's no socialist-oriented critique of the larger system. So you have all of these movements, extremely important, but they don't go far enough to aggregate right into a larger challenge to the system. So that's a challenge on us. We have to work on that. And of course we are. All over the world we're trying to resolve that. But that's one of these four quandaries I mentioned in the book, this, this juncture between an organized left, which is weak or non-existence, and mass social movements which are burgeoning. When reading the book, William, 
I was thinking about the um, aspect of uh, all this that you were writing and about you talked about organic intellectuals and the battles that come are much more theoretical and ideological as they are political. And that what you just said is the sense of if these different particular struggles that are manifested in their response to capital, whether it be in reservations or rural areas and their territories and native nations and the discussion about about the world and about their own nation state, that uh, the realization, as you wanted to point out in this book, is as far as the, what's the overall, the bird's eye view as the eagle flies, you might say, as far as what do we have to contend with and what's happening in the real world. And within this book, you mentioned certain things, and I appreciate you, you're looking at it from a different viewpoint and a viewpoint on where you pull all these threads together in order to understand who are these people like the transnational capitalists, who, what is in our way, what are the systems um, that are systematic about the, uh, about the demands of the crisis that they understood that we could interpret it better by the masses of people, meaning the different segment of American society and the world society, hemispherically, globally, whatever. You give that tinge, that light, in order to describe and put some more meat on the skeleton when people say, I'm against capitalism, but they don't really know what they're talking about. In other words, um, to identify who are the players, corporations, individuals, the Roman history, and how this unfolds. So I really appreciate the discussion. Sure. Well, I use that term, I think you used it in, in I, I, you just used it as well, organic intellectuals. And there's n never has been a time of radical social transformation without organic intellectuals playing a role. What we mean by organic is you're part of mass movements, you're part of leftist and trans emancipatory projects. But it's not intellectuals which lead masses of people. It's masses of people which self-organize. That's the road to our liberation, of course. But together with organic intellectuals that can do just what you're saying, that can bring theory to the masses. So masses have a theoretical understanding of the system that we are up against, that can clarify things. I mean, uh, organic intellectuals subordinated to the mass social uh, uh, movements. And here there's a critique that I have in that big final chapter on the global revolt, whether the global revolt, that's the title of it. And I know that some of what I wrote in that chapter will be controversial or at least provocative to a number of my readers, but that's good. We need controversy, we need provocation, we need to debate all of this. Because I do have a critique of organic intellectuals, um, at least in the West, in, in, that I, in that last chapter. And my argument there is that Organic intellectuals played an important role in participating and giving some um, intellectual clarification or theoretical clarification to the mass movements of the 1960s and the 1970s. And, but then organic intellectual, and then these intellectuals, the, the intellectual class or the academic class in, in Sconston universities in the ivory tower withdrew in the 1980s and 1990s and into the 21st century. And so you had this disjuncture between masses of people still wanting to fight for change and intellectuals withdrawing into a different discourse to um, and to um, pursuing their own professional uh, 
interests. But there's the, the key um, thing here I want to say is that the ruling groups unleashed a counteroffensive worldwide. In the United States, it's crystal clear, but it's also worldwide. In the 1980s and 1990s, a counteroffensive to the mass rebellions of the 1960s and 1970s. Um, remember those rebellions. We're talking about national liberation movements. We're talking about social third world revolutionary movements. We're talking about in the United States, a, a Chicano liberation movement, a black liberation movement, the American Indian movement. Uh, we're talking about the, the rise of a militant feminist movement in the 1960s and early 1970s. We're talking about radical workers, the, the um, Radical, the most radical of the trade unions were becoming socialist-oriented, led by black and Chicano workers. Uh, so but this is worldwide. There's this revolutionary uprising in the 60s and 70s. The ruling groups counter that with their counter-revolutionary wave, the neoliberal offensive, the offensive of capitalist globalization in the 80s and 90s. So politics takes a conservative turn. The United States and Great Britain, you have those symbols of Thatcher and of Reagan. But worldwide, the ruling groups take this conservative counter-revolutionary turn from above. We've analyzed that earlier in the interview. It allows momentarily for the emerging transnational capitalist class to gain the upper hand and we lose us below. But now the global revolt is changing the balance again. But what happened with, to the intellectuals, because that's what you're asking about. The intellectuals that played an important role as organic intellectuals of those mass movements in the 60s and 70s, they withdraw from those movements and they now pursue their own professional careers. And what do they do? They develop what I critique, and this is where for some listeners it will be provocative, that what I call the identitarian critique in which now these all these movements and radical struggles are reduced to simply uh, individual identity groups claiming that they want diversity and representation and that's fine and important diversity and representation but you can make more diverse and more representative the ca global capital social order and change nothing for the mass of humanity um, and so I critique this identitarian uh, paradigm and I critique what I call the betrayal of the intellectuals, of what some people, others have called the professional managerial class, their betrayal of the mass movements. Um, and part of that betrayal is they now said that Marxism is this Eurocentric ideology that we have no need for. Political economy analysis of capitalism, we have no need for. All we need is representation and diversity and inclusion are based on identity, different identity uh, uh, groups. And so a whole generation of young people coming of age in the late 20th, early 21st century are being given this message by the intellectuals that you don't need political economy, you don't need a radical socialist or Marxist critique of global uh, capitalism. And that is another problem that we have to face up to. Um,